Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Arthur here. I'm sure if you've listened to this podcast before, you'll have realized that we're not always offering the most optimistic take on world affairs. And in this series, I've shared warnings of a modern-day battle on the high seas, the threat of aggressive imperialist leaders, a terrifying new arms race as weapons tech gets automated. These are all big existential threats that we as individuals can't do much about. But one thing I've never particularly worried about myself is my own health. It feels as if that's something that I can mostly take personal control of. And then... The other day, I was talking to a friend of mine, Professor Christina Pargel. Christina was a prominent member of the independent SAGE group set up during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was there to provide a public discourse on the science behind public health decision-making. We were talking about what new health threats might be on the horizon. Um, In terms of what's coming, Um, Well, actually, I went on to this website yesterday called Gavi, which is the Global Alliance for Vaccines. And they have a whole list of all the viruses that they're worried about. And if you ever want to freak yourself out, just go to there and look up epidemics that could come. The the main ones I think people are worried about is flu. Flu, that was what all the the pre-COVID pandemic planning was based on. Another coronavirus. But also there are are other viruses, mosquito-borne, tick-borne. And not, it's not just about global travel, it's that we're expanding, there's more overcrowding, there's more kind of human habitat interaction at the boundaries, so there's more potential for things to cross that species boundary. And that's kind of quite, quite a dangerous situation. This is rather worrying. And on top of all this, the drugs we depend on to treat some of our maladies, a lot of those don't work anymore. Back at the Gavi website, One of the latest news links reads the following, I quote, The silent pandemic, how drug-resistant superbugs risk becoming the world's number one killer. One day, the efficacy of these antibiotics simply will be gone. Now, we need to see action, not words. And that's getting round the table and taking a whole society approach to combating antibiotic resistance. And we are looking at a potential health catastrophe. Grab your face masks and lock the doors. This is the next pandemic. Systems and interacting much more closely. And that's where the danger zone lies. We're having a slow creep of gain of resistance and it's going to be a big problem facing us going forward. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth. And now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. In this era of political division and controversy, there's perhaps one thing we can all agree on. 
We don't like lockdowns and we don't want another pandemic. And perhaps we may not want to relive the COVID-19 experience quite yet. But sadly, to all of the above, we may have no choice. A 2021 study in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences determined a 2% annual chance of an outbreak similar to COVID-19. That might not sound like very much, but by the wonders of mathematics, that means that anyone born in the year 2000 had already stood a 38% chance of experiencing such an event. With climate change and environmental factors tripling the pandemic risk in coming decades and emerging infectious diseases already on the rise at almost 7% a year since 1980, according to a World Bank report, it's fair to say that things look a little dicey. So we better get prepared then. But will we do that? One person who knows all about the risk of inertia is science writer Laura Spinney. As recently as 2017, she had a bestseller with her book, Pale Rider, about the Spanish influenza outbreak after World War I, which killed an uncountably large number of people worldwide, potentially more than 50 million. Well, I mean, the question that you're framing is the one that made me write this book, basically, which is, why did we forget? Um, You know, the worst pandemic in modern times, way more deadly than the Great War, the First World War, with which it overlapped, according to the sort of most widely accepted statistics, um, because one of the problems is we don't know exactly how many people died in the pandemic. That's also a problem for the for the war, by the way, but it's much more of a problem for the pandemic for one uh, central reason, which is that there wasn't a reliable diagnostic test. So it's this event that was huge that overlapped with another that, at least if measured in terms of just deaths was much smaller and yet the first the war was remembered and the second was almost completely forgotten i mean if you look at history books throughout the 20th century the pandemic if it's mentioned at all is mentioned as a kind of footnote could this happen with covid-19 for many of us in the well vaccinated west it's not taken long to shed the masks and stop the testing And of course, there have long been voices claiming the virus is overblown, a 5G-enabled pandemic to bring about control, even some disinfo extremists claiming it was all a hoax. But surely most people won't forget again. You know, I think there are many ways I could answer that question, but um, I suppose if there's one thing that's come out of living through COVID for me, it's that human nature doesn't really change very much. Um, Science advances, uh, our understanding of what a pandemic is changes all the time. But human nature in the face of such a threat does not really. Um, And the example I could give would be conspiracy theories. Those have accompanied pandemics since the beginning of time. So let's get this straight. Just what is it that's round the corner? What do we need to be aware of? When I spoke to Laura in the autumn of 2022, we were all reading headlines about a new emergent infectious threat. You know, we're now in the middle of another public health emergency of international concern, a PHEIC, as the WHO calls it, uh, and that's monkeypox. And I think it's 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 fascinating in the context of our conversation because it just we, we, we just literally repeated the same mistakes. 
as we did with COVID, slow off the mark, presuming that it could never come here. And, and we had literally half a century to repair. P- monkeypox was first identified in humans in, in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1970. We have tests available for it. We have vaccines that b- could be active against it. And, and we just sat on our hands again. So that's monkeypox. Thankfully, effective and targeted deployment of the existing knowledge and medication has slowed this down. But the health whack-a-mole doesn't end there. Remember Christina Pargel warned of freaking yourself out on the Gavi website? Well, let's have a go. The main ones I think people are worried about is flu. Are we going to get um, bird flu? That was what all the pre-COVID pandemic planning was based on. It's still going to come. We're currently in a bird flu pandemic around the world in birds. If that leaps to humans, that's a big issue. I don't know if you saw there was reporting um, just recently that they found another coronavirus in bats, which they think has the potential to cause another pandemic. But also there are there are other viruses, mosquito-borne, tick-borne, that could be really damaging, things like Zika, uh, Nipah virus. There's a lot that's on the horizon. I had a little look myself. It's mm, fun. There is, of course, Ebola, a hemorrhagic fever likely hosted by fruit bats, which passes human to human through infected bodily fluids. It's already caused severe epidemics in West Africa in the 2010s and has extremely high fatality rates. An outbreak of its relative, the Marburg virus, in Angola in 2005 killed 90% of those infected. There's Lassa fever, another with severe toll on the African continent, this one spread by rats. Then SARS, a relative of coronavirus, which caused a much smaller pandemic back in 2002 and 3, And MERS, first discovered in Saudi Arabia in 2012. Then there are the mosquito illnesses, like Rift Valley fever, which emerged in Africa and has now spread to the Middle East, exacerbated by the climate crisis. But beyond scary fatality rates and transmissibility, there are key factors which link some of these new or emerging diseases. And that means we have to discuss zoonotics. Only Chinese investigation teams have been given access to the market. There is now likely little left inside for the World Health Organization to examine when they are eventually allowed back to Wuhan. One year on from the first cluster of cases here, there are still more questions than answers about the origin of the virus that caused COVID-19. So a zoonotic disease is one that comes into humans from an animal, from another species. Uh, and that's why we talk, talk about spillover events. So the spillover of, say, a virus from another animal, which, by the way, may not be the natural reservoir. You can have a couple of animals in the chain, but comes into humans. Pandemics by definition, are um, uh, outbreaks of disease that humans have basically not seen before, at least not the humans who are alive at that point. But uh, the point is that nobody on the planet at the moment that spillover event happens has any immunity to that particular pathogen. Uh, And if the pathogen that spills over happens by some bad luck for us to be highly transmissible uh, and not to kill too many of its hosts, those people it infects, then it could have the potential to go global. So that's the danger. And, uh, you know, some public experts worry that we didn't have the worst possible scenario with COVID. The next virus that emerges with pandemic potential could actually be far more lethal as well than COVID was. 
What does this mean in practice? Should we, can we, shut down all the wet markets like that one in Wuhan? Can we seal ourselves off from the animal kingdom? It's not likely. And if, like me, you live in the countryside, you'll know there's a certain grim reality about this balance. Our lives are already deeply intertwined with animals. For example, where I live, poultry are under lock and key at the moment thanks to bird flu risks. There's actually no such thing as a free-range egg in the winter of 2022. So should we be afraid of the birds? So for it to become a pandemic issue, you have to have human-to-human spread. And so far with bird flu, you've not had that. You've got people getting it direct from the birds. But people have done kind of um, like biological analysis of, of, of the virus and, and they say that actually there aren't, it, it, doesn't, it won't take many mutations for it to become human-to-human transmissible. And then you're in a situation where there could be a big pandemic because there's no real immunity in the population against it. And so far, when people do get it from birds, it has a really high fatality rate. So that's kind of why people are kind of freaking out about it. Maybe Alfred Hitchcock was right. But what's the science behind this? I asked Christina if we can quantify the risks of mutation. Every time it replicates, there's a, there's a chance for it to go wrong. Um, part of it is just the numbers game. The more people or animals are infected, the more chances there are for something to replicate. But there is always just this fundamental unpredictability of it. You just don't know. Well, <laughs> you really do need to speak to an evolutionary biologist for that, I think. So my name is uh, Ravi Gupta. I'm Professor of Clinical Microbiology at the University of Cambridge. So um, I, I'm an evolutionary biologist in many ways in, in that I study how for example, viruses have been changing over time through a number of mechanisms, but mainly um, through mistakes that are made when we copy our genetic material. And when those mistakes are made, sometimes they're beneficial, uh, in which case those mutations um, or benefits will propagate, or uh, they'll be detrimental, in which case those mutations will disappear. So this is the sort of process of, of evolution and, and selection. Uh, and it's very relevant because new pathogens um, or new disease threats are really in an evolutionary arms race with with humans because um, over millennia we have learned to defend ourselves against these viruses and pathogens and viruses have in turn um, evolved to overcome our defenses. But Ravi, how did this apply in the case of the COVID pandemic? This underpins the understanding of really what's been happening uh, with SARS-CoV-2 because this is a virus that emerged and was uh, assumed to be uh, a very slow evolver, as it were, uh, and yet it became uh, known as a very fast evolver with all of these new variants. And we were sort of some of the first uh, to, to understand how this was happening. And it really was because contrary to other respiratory viruses that are relatively short-lived, um, SARS-CoV-2 was able to set up long-term infections in people. And in, those, in that context, it was able to evolve in real time against our defences in these individuals who are infected for months and months and months. So that's how we understand new variants to have emerged through a process of evolution within individuals. The idea that COVID was waiting, biding its time, locked inside an individual is profoundly disconcerting. I asked Ravi whether the virus had surprised him. Absolutely. I mean, we were we were really stunned by uh, the the leaps that the virus was making 
in infectiousness and its ability to uh, evade immunity with with each successive variant. And although Alpha had a relatively minor advantage in terms of evading immunity, it was much more infectious. And we saw that in populations. But again, it comes back to the fact that this must have happened with an individual because the time over which this happened was relatively short. And all the mutations suddenly appeared at once in one virus. And we didn't see evidence of the individual mutations happening at population level. And then, of course, um, after Alpha, the Delta took over. And, and this virus had really interesting combination of much more infectious properties. Uh, and it was also evading immunity to a much higher degree than Alpha was. So it, it had learned to escape immune systems. So, so it, it tells us that the virus is able to very cleverly explore these different mutational possibilities. Of course, uh, with the advent of Omicron, this was taken uh, to another degree. I mean, people were wondering at one stage whether we could see any further evolution of this virus. Um, and then, of course, we were all surprised by the, the extreme number of mutations observed in Omicron. Uh, it was infecting people who had been vaccinated, uh, much like Delta did, but to a, again, to a higher degree. So this virus was um, kind of invisible to some extent, to, to vaccines, uh, although we did still have good protection from severe disease because of other arms of the immune system. But again, we were able to show something really important that actually the Omicron had actually, whilst making itself highly infectious and immune evasive, had actually lost one of its properties of causing severe disease um, uh, and, and severe pneumonia and low oxygen levels. And we showed that this is because the mutations had changed the cells that it was able to infect so where we are now, of course, is um, Omicron was such a highly evolved virus and so successful that actually older viruses uh, related to, for example, Delta Alpha and the original Wuhan could have been incubating in individuals and mutating heavily. But they found it very difficult to compete against the Omicron because it's almost reaching a sort of pinnacle of mutational achievement and it takes a lot to beat it. Um, so this tells us that Omicron has achieved something that very few other viruses can do. Uh, and it's um, it's circulating in populations that are heavily vaccinated and with uh, lots of previous exposures and and immunity. So for now, we're seeing different uh, sort of sub-variants of Omicron. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we won't see another sort of big paradigm shift in the coming 12 months. So I'm, I'm st I still have an open mind as to whether we'll see that. Uh, of course, we're hoping that we won't. But of course, I think we need to remember what sort of, or, or, or at least have certain preparations uh, at hand. In other words, plan for... For, for such an event. COVID surged across a planet, laying waste to our attempts to prevent its spread. And though there's a note of optimism in Ravi's words that Omicron has had to lose some of its potency to survive, there remains the very worrying fact that it has found a way to blunten our best defence so far, the vaccine rollout. And that takes us to perhaps the most worrying thing of all, the chance that the drugs we use, this time not for viruses, but for bacterial infections, don't work anymore. The whole of society, uh, all 7 billion of us all over the world, needs new drugs. And importantly, even with inside the pharmaceutical industry, a lot of what pharmaceutical companies do so well, they couldn't carry on on those other things without antibiotics. I think the threat of antimicrobial resistance or the worry about antimicrobial resistance is that it's always going to be there. We're always going to use antimicrobials. We're always going to use antibiotics. And whenever we do that, we give a selective advantage for the bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. So it's a continual problem. And what we need to do better and what my research has shown 
is that we need to do better at understanding what's driving the trends in antimicrobial resistance because what we can see is that there's something that's going to slowly build and build and build. This is already at worrying levels. So getting an estimate of how many individuals die due to being infected with a drug-resistant bacteria is really difficult because we don't sample, we don't take a clinical swab or a bacterial sample from every individual that's infected. So it's really hard to know what the total burden um, of drug susceptibility in the bacteria causing infections globally is. However, um, there have been attempts to do this. And when we do this, we find some figures estimate that around 5 million deaths are associated with bacterial drug resistance and that estimate was for the year 2019. It's about 5 million people dying globally. And this burden is really not homogeneously distributed across the globe. There are some settings where you've got many more um, infections due to, say, poor water sanitation and also poor access to antibiotics. And then within that, the prevalence of resistance, so how many of those infections are due to drug resistance, um, massively varies. And the, and the big issue here is that antibiotics are our first-line defence or our first-line treatment against a lot of infections. And so with growing drug resistance, we're going to find those infections harder to treat. But also a lot of modern medicine relies on antibiotics. For example, if you think about uh, caesarean sections or chemotherapy, anything which breaks the skin barrier or sort of turns us into immunocompromised person, we then rely on, on antibiotics to, to prop up our immune system, to allow us to do all these great things that modern medicine have come up with. But if we don't have those antibiotics, then the balance of, of risk will, will, will increase as we get more and more drug resistance. What we might be talking about here is the end of modern medicine as we know it. A world in which a visit to hospital for a routine procedure threatens becoming a high-risk journey across a minefield of superbugs. Now I'm worried. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dutton. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. We've heard what we're facing then. Ever-evolving, highly transmissible pathogens able to avoid our human defences. So what happens next? Laura Spinney examined the Spanish flu to learn what we could from this oft-forgotten catastrophe. Right. So a small kind of potted history of that pandemic. It, it arrived in three waves. The first arrived in the early months of 1918, so while the war was st still raging. Uh, and it was clearly something out of this world. It was just vicious. In spite of the horrendous scale of suffering, history has largely forgotten the Spanish flu, perhaps because it came in the aftermath of the war that was supposed to end all wars, World War I. Medicine was almost completely helpless in the face of this um, disease to the extent that it was uh, often misdiagnosed, not taken as flu at all, confused with uh, pneumonic plague, typhus with all sorts of very frightening diseases that sometimes do what this disease did to the unlucky ones, which was 
um, cause them uh, after initial flu-like symptoms of a sore throat, headache, fever, and so on, to have trouble breathing, to turn blue in the face, to uh, then turn a darker color, then you would turn black and the whole body would turn black. Um, and at that point, uh, you know, death was imminent, could come within uh, hours or days. And basically what was going on in the lungs was a massive inflammatory reaction. Uh, people would even um, bleed from their noses and mouths horribly. Uh, and some people died, though, just sort of falling down where they stood. This fear, the not knowing, we can all hear the echoes across the century. And in this lack of certainty come the doubts, the rumours, the conspiracies the uncanny parallels with today. Yeah, absolutely. Pandemics are both biological and social phenomena. We do not like to feel helpless or out of control. Um, And so people tried to find explanations for the thing that medicine could not explain very well. And very often uh, against the backdrop of huge stress and, and psychic trauma anyway because of the war, the kind of tendency that we have to look for explanations in the sort of domain of conspiracies and the divine and the mystic was perhaps heightened at that time. It was a much more religious era anyway. So, you know, for a very long time, including uh, including during the 1918 pandemic, there's this, there's this kind of deep belief, I think, in, in people across the world, which goes back at least as far as the Middle Ages, uh, that pandemics are a thunderbolt from an angry God. They're... they're, they're they're things that we can't do anything about. They're beyond our power to intervene. Um, and so people found all sorts of, um, maybe nowadays we can say crazy explanations. Some of them were, were of, the, of the form of divine punishment, mainly for this terrible war that was raging. And others were of the form of um, sort of quasi-medical ones. There was even a doctor from uh, Ireland, uh, a Sinn Féin doctor actually, who, who said publicly that she thought it was the noxious gases that were rising off the battlefields of Flanders and floating over the earth that were causing this terrible scourge. Um, So it was here, it was mass death, and then it was gone. And that made, that I think made it even harder to be, to, to make sense of. You know, it was just this sort of terrible ghastly wind that blew through and then was gone. In our first series, we spoke with journalist Darren Lucades, who had been tracking a right-wing media startup named Unlock UK, which sprung into action as an anti-lockdown platform. Its social media still lingers, a reminder of a network of right-wing talking heads and their favourite topics. Here's Darren from season one. It's not exactly a huge mainstream platform but it's but it's nevertheless important because it's a kind of node in this network of of covid disinformation and kind of radical right anti-woke propaganda i would call it and it's also had some big hits for example one of the first platform a guy called mike yeadon who happens to be a former head of scientific research at pfizer and and former vice president there who's somewhat bizarrely we might say turned into a kind of hero of covid deniers he he is largely against lockdowns and unlocked were really important in platforming him they platformed several signees of something called the great barrington declaration and yeah, the, the the declaration itself, the meeting was was funded by a, a, a radical right think tank with um, links to fossil fuel money and climate change 
denialism. And so, yeah, it's this, it's this kind of key node in the network. It's interesting to see where this has all led us. A quick look at Unlock's Twitter shows the same faces are still out there pushing against public health measures, often through supposedly mainstream platforms such as GB News. But aside from the extremists, there's an interesting trend here, and you might have picked it up on the clip. Events such as the Freedom March, itself of course a legitimate expression of protest in a democratic state, are highlighting a growing agitation across all groups since the pandemic broke out. I'm uh, Frederik Jørgensen. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Aarhus and specifically in the Department of Political Science. I'm affiliated with uh, this uh, massive project called the HOPE Project, uh, where we uh, have studied behavior during the, the COVID pandemic. The latest research paper from Frederick and his colleagues investigated the consequences of pandemic fatigue, whether negative feelings towards the experience and its regulations carried a long tail. Here's what they found. So the sample includes Denmark, Sweden, Germany, France, Italy, uh, the United Kingdom, Hungary and uh, the United States. It's a questionnaire and the specific data used in this study, uh, the PNAS publication, is from September 2020 to July 2021. Uh, the specific countries were selected sort of to aim at getting a diversity in responses to the uh, pandemic when we started sampling. Uh, so, so how strict were the current uh, policies back then, and then also aiming to uh, get a diversity in what did the pandemic look like at the time. So, so what we found is a general increase over time in pandemic fatigue, uh, more or less across all countries, right? But what we also find is that it moves sort of with levels of stringency and pandemic and, and the pandemic development. People will feel less fatigued or accept the policy measures when they feel that it's sort of meaningful to have strict policies, right? So uh, they feel less fatigued when the pandemic is worse, but the situation in which they feel more fatigued is when the pandemic itself is not increasing, but we still have strict policies, then people begin to feel fatigued. The president did not address the country's economic downturn or housing crisis, and anyone hoping he might relax COVID restrictions was told there will be no let-up in what he called the people's war. There may be listeners who, if they were lucky enough to get through the pandemic without losing anyone close and who kept their jobs, for now at least, they may have put that period behind them. But, Frederick argues, the data suggests this discontent is being felt across society, regardless of the conditions and pandemic experience. The phenomenon of major protests all across tightly controlled China, where Xi and the CCP placed domestic security at the top of their governance agenda, is perhaps the most striking example of this. With these results, based on this research, what we clearly see is that uh, pandemic fatigue is a driver of political discontent. Uh, so when we see increases in fatigue, we also see that uh, people, for example, uh, come to 
to distrust the government more. We see that they tend to oppose uh, COVID restrictions more and go to the streets to protest. First, it was all about opposition to China's strict zero COVID policy. No more PCR tests, no more isolation, they shout in Beijing. And freedom! Freedom! We want freedom. But in recent days, the message has morphed, touching the rawest of political nerves. The results that we found fits what is going on in China right now. So we've seen, I think, fatigue accumulating over time in China. And now we see, as a response, uh, people are displaying uh, in the public their uh, discontent with the political uh, situation. So people are able to accept and cope with the policies as long as they feel that they're necessary so that you adjust your policies, uh, your COVID policies, your strictness level uh, when the pandemic situation requires it. Uh, so when the pandemic is increasing, uh, but the policies that China has uh, pursued has more been these zero COVID policies where you just lock down society, the, the whole society. Do you recall that strain of optimism that appeared in the early stages of lockdown? The hopes we'd rethink the balance of our lives, that we could focus more on each other and sourdough. Well, we may still hold these ideals, but global realities do have a way of taking over. Supply chain issues kick-started an inflationary spiral. Putin's war followed on the heels of the pandemic surge, while the related energy crisis is now cutting living standards further. The IMF is warning of a global recession. As Laura Spinney said then, pandemics are both biological and social phenomena. Has this one radicalised us all? What previous research has shown is that fatigue has been related to radicalization of uh, smaller groups and that fatigue has been a health challenge, so a challenge to the uh, health-related behavior. But where our new results come in is to show that um, uh, fatigue uh, has ramifications far beyond the health area and far beyond just small radicalized groups. It's actually the case that we have big sections of the populations that say that they would uh, support protest against the government's policies and that they worry about their own political rights. What about those splinter groups we heard about from Darren Lacades back in series one? Well, the pandemic gave them the chance to go mainstream onto TV news and tabloid newspapers. And debates over vaccines and masks have, particularly in North America, turned into fundamental social fractures. Dr. Rula Nazi is a lecturer on political science at Surrey University and has been researching affective polarization. So affective polarization is different like any kind of like uh, ideological polarization. When we're talking about ideological polarization in a party system or in a society, you know, as a whole, we just disagree. And that's it. We can debate about it. But, you know, the basis is that we just have different political views on specific political issues and policies. When it comes to affective polarization, what happens is that in society, we see that uh, citizens or partisans of specific parties, they develop very strong negative feelings uh, against the outgroup, like the members of the opposite party. 
that has a direct effect on social cohesion, for example. So there have been studies, especially in the States, uh, where they have seen that, for example, we don't want to interact with people who support uh, the opposite or the different political party. Uh, we don't want to be colleagues. Uh, we don't want to be involved in any kind of relationships, uh, for example. But I think that the main problem there uh, when it comes to uh, to politics is that when the levels of affect polarization in society are quite high, what we see is that uh, people and the voters tend to be quite myopic, so they tend to punish the party in government, even though the policies that they employ uh, are actually good. This is something that has blighted much of political debate in recent years. Think Trump's America or Brexit Britain, immigration in Europe. The pandemic has simply accelerated the trend. As Ruler says, Health issues are key battlegrounds in these disputes. The partisanship which follows affects the personal and political in a vicious cycle. So I think one of the main challenges uh, of affect polarization has to do with how people perceive their political leaders and how they evaluate their policies. Let's take an example of a policy that, at least from our perspective, let's say that we say is a good policy, however we define a good policy. Let's say something related to more spending on education, for example. Uh, this is an example we all agree that is like it's a good policy, that we all agree that we want more spending on, on education, right? So when there is a there are, there's a high level of affect polarization in society, those members of the society who are actually against the, prime, the party uh, supporting the prime minister, they will, what we say in public opinion, uh, they will try and throw the rascals out and not because of the specific policies that they try to implement, but because they will by default think that they are wrong. For example, there has been research supporting that that could have been even the case, not the only case, but that could have been the case even within Obamacare, to give you an example. So, um, Rula, is this having a tangible effect on the political landscape? Different issues become salient at different periods, depending on the general context. So, for example, during the economic crisis, the economy uh, was very important and austerity politics were extremely salient. During the pandemic, Policies related to COVID, like the lockdown, wearing a mask uh, or not, when even the schools uh, will reopen or whether they should reopen or not, uh, they were very salient. And what we know now is that a lot of people who are actually against uh, the vaccines and taking part in demonstrations against the lockdowns and against certain policies like wearing masks, they tend to vote if they will turn out to vote, they will tend to vote for populist and radical right parties. Yeah. What I find quite challenging is that there have been people in my age, for example, right? They have spent the formative years during the economic crisis, followed by the pandemic and followed by the cost of living crisis and the war in Ukraine. So uh, what is what is the impact uh, of that on people's attitudes and behavior and position on different issues. What we see in general in Europe, especially among the younger cohorts, is that there is uh, they lack trust and they lack trust to political institutions and to democracy. But also what we observe is what we call uh, like a backlash, a cultural backlash. 
and that is quite prominent in many countries. So for me, that is that is warning because it seems like the process of uh, modernization and the process of moving to like uh, social liberalism has been kind of uh, brutally stopped because of the different crises that we have faced. Despite the historical examples, despite the warnings from recent epidemics, medical professionals, despite the huge amount of data, at the time we record this, COVID-19 has led to 650 million cases and more than 6.5 million deaths as reported to the WHO. So, if the next pandemic is coming, what do we need to fix? Here's Laura Spinney. So we worry about cancer and Alzheimer's and so on. Uh, we worry far less about infectious diseases. And I spoke to a couple of frontline doctors during the, you know, the, the hot stage of the pandemic who would say to me, the trouble is we've, we, we in, the, in the West, if you want to call it that, have lost the reflex of fighting epidemics. We don't know how to isolate people and quarantine people. and We don't take contact tracing seriously. None of these things are true of, for example, certain countries in Southeast Asia or certain countries in Sub-Saharan Africa where those memories are vivid uh, and even ongoing and people take those threats seriously. And you might perhaps see, um, at least in, in again in the, in the hot phase of the pandemic, more cooperation between the population and the government, more kind of, of of a united front against a, a threat that all recognize to be real and, and serious. Uh, and that obviously is a reflection of our history. And in some ways, you know, one might say that something like uh, vaccines or antibiotics have been victims of their own success because nobody, you know, until COVID, many people alive today in, in the wealthy northern countries uh, remembered a, a, a serious pandemic. Well, I think what it shows is the threat's not abating, it's actually continuing to rise. And that means that we need to more concerted action to reduce the impact um, on patients of these resistant infections. Can we afford this complacency? And particularly so in the light of antimicrobial resistance. Gwen Knight. I work mostly on antibiotic resistance, and that's um, specifically thinking about bacteria. And when they become resistant, it means that the bacteria can grow in the presence of the antibiotic. So that means that if you have an infection, for example, a small cut on your finger that um, we've all had them in the past, they go a bit yellow maybe, that's that's the sign of a bacteria fighting with your immune system. We might treat that with an antibiotic. So you might either have a cream or you might take an antibiotic pill. And that antibiotic is is trying to remove that bacteria, it's trying to aid your immune system to clear the bacteria, or if it's more serious, it's growing in your blood. And when the bacteria becomes resistant, um, then those antibiotics, those treatments, that medicine no longer kills the bacteria and that bacteria can survive and replicate and go on to cause um, serious problems within our body that the immune system is unable to um, cope with. One of the issues we face is an over-reliance on these treatments, opening them up to the kind of pathogenic evolution that, as Ravi Gupta described earlier, evades our best defences. 
There are huge implications here. But you mentioned there the idea that what is the Pandora's box that we're opening? Um, and there's quite a lot of research going on at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine that's thinking about antibiotics in terms of their wider place in society. Um, we're aware that we have to do better at protecting some of them because they're more essential for treating infections globally. And in fact, over the last 50 years, obviously, we've seen a huge revolution in what we can do in modern medicine. So, for example, um, uh, cesarean sections, um, hip replacements and, and cancer chemotherapy. All of these things either rely on making a huge incision in our physical um, barrier to infection, our skin, or they involve um, hampering or some way limiting the, the ability of our immune system to fight infections. And so we use antibiotics as a crutch to support those procedures. And that's what's really worrying about antibiotic resistance is that when we get a level of resistance where those, those procedures become really risky in terms of a bacterial infection that we might not be able to treat, then we might see a future where those modern medicine innovations become threatened. One of the cases is a disease many of my generation thought we'd seen the back of. So the big one and the big, big infectious disease killer that most people focused on with the first antibiotic development was tuberculosis. And the combination therapy that was introduced widely in the sort of 1970s was, was a game changer. Unfortunately, then, um, because of the interaction between TB and HIV, huge explosion in TB incidents in the 1990s, and now TB is likely, again, the biggest infectious disease killer. Um, it's sort of up there with COVID, the two of them globally, the biggest infectious disease killer. And a substantial proportion of the burden of TB is now drug-resistant TB, where it's resistant to that combination therapy. This disease that we thought we had a therapy for in the 1970s and was, was really, we we're really doing really well in holding it back is, is now a huge proportion of it. I think it's a half a million cases a year. Um, globally. But the other big problem is that TB now, and, and it was in the past, but now even more so, is, is a disease of the, um, of the poor and in, in settings where we have um, poor health infrastructure and also where we have high HIV. Um, TB is a real big problem. But to beat the pandemic here, we need to beat it everywhere. And I made and I'm keeping the promise that America will become the arsenal of vaccines as we're the arsenal for democracy during World War II. Another aspect of global complacency, of course, lies in the inequalities which put poorer people and poorer nations in greater harm. And also, in an age of zoonotic threat, exacerbate the problems we face. I asked Christina Pargel what was at stake. If we think about where a lot of these spillover events happen. They're kind of in stressed environments, often in kind of Central Africa or, or South Asia or South America, where you have a lot of interspecies interhuman kind of interaction. And if those countries are stressed politically, it's going to be very, very difficult to have good surveillance in place um, to first spot that there's something happening and then to contain it. And so actually you need that if you want to stop a global pandemic. Yeah. Um and climate change, how does climate change play into this whole picture? Massively. Firstly, you know, it's causing mass migration of animals and people. Um, it's causing a change in climate that allows disease-bearing animals like ticks and mosquitoes to, to move into completely new environments where there are people with no existing immunity. That can cause big issues. And we're already seeing that 
Um, in Southern Europe, now you're getting mosquitoes that are carrying viruses, including um, malaria. It also causes more habitat encroachment. So you're getting animal reservoirs that previously not met people are now meeting people. And there's always a potential for spillover in that, in that sense. COVID-19 really is the test case for this. A spillover event likely to have emanated from a wet market in a globally connected industrial city. The globalised system we live in has serious vulnerabilities, not least in terms of our food supply chain. So do we need to shut down these sorts of food markets? Okay, so I think, you know, in the reporting on the wet markets, there's been a lot of xenophobia. And there's a lot of high-flown talk of, you know, the, the kind of exotic animals that were on sale there. But after the, the epidemic of SARS, SARS-1, the kind of closely related virus that caused the epidemic in China 20 years ago, that was also tied to the live animal markets. Um, and uh, China, after that, banned those markets. Um, and it didn't work because vast numbers of Chinese people, especially in rural areas, depend on those markets for uh, their sustenance. And so basically it just pushed the markets under, underground. Um, what's needed, I think it's now fair to say, is, is a sort of evidence-based surveillance system and better regulation. As well as the threats of further COVID-style outbreaks, the farming system is also vital in the future protection of antibiotic treatments. Yet we still don't understand the true role of the food system in this area. Here's Gwen. I'm also working on projects to think about the One Health dimension of antimicrobial resistance. So the idea um, that globally, again, the vast majority of antibiotics are given uh, to food producing animals or in food production. And we, you know, your sort of gut feeling would then be, well, this must be a huge driver of antimicrobial resistance and therefore a huge cause of infections with drug-resistant bacteria in humans. But actually, when you start to pull the data together, there's no doubt that that's, that antibiotic usage will select for resistant bacteria, but it's whether those resistant bacteria are the ones that go on to cause us the clinical problems that we still don't have a handle on. So pulling apart that relative attribution and relative contribution um, it, it, yeah, is, a, is something that I'm actively working on at the moment. So how easy is it going to be to clean up our food supply? You know, the solutions to this are not going to be in any way easy. People have been talking about the sort of toxicity of the, of the global farming industry for a long time, but we have to feed our people. And, and so, it, you know, the point is we ought to be having that debate. We're not really having it. And farming is also now globalised like everything else. So uh, there's a distinct lack of accountability and visibility about how things are done. Uh, and, and I think that needs to end. You know, uh, I've heard someone say that there's no point in blaming anyone for uh, a pandemic which starts on their territory. It's a bit like blaming a country for a, st a storm that starts there. You, you have to look at the long term, the long range factors that are shaping it. And you have to collectively come together to solve those problems. Here we are in late 2022, where I live, and I suspect where you live, most people feel like the pandemic is behind them. And the World Health Organization has not yet declared it over. And uh, it's not even clear if it will, actually. Uh, but feeding into it, I suspect, is uncertainty over long COVID. You know, uh, that a, a pandemic has a long tail, 
we could have predicted. We really could have done. I mean, most pandemics have this kind of chronic uh, dimension to them. The 1918 flu definitely did. There were people who had um, uh, chronic kind of post-flu syndromes for, for months, if not years afterwards. It's very much to be expected. And it's a huge part of the social and economic burden of a pandemic. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that we really need to think about harder about stopping these things hard and fast in the early stages. We, we, we never think about this proactively, but if you stop people getting infected, then you reduce the risks of the long-term disease. And, and that's something that really needs to be factored into the discussions. But that each time this happens, we learn and we take steps forward. And some of the steps that are happening now, assuming they actually culminate in action, are quite you know positive and promising. Don't forget that you know science did amazing things in this pandemic. They produced the mRNA vaccines, which are protecting so many of us now. You know, we were talking earlier about visibility, accountability, the need for more of these things if we're going to respond well to pandemics and and hopefully prevent them in the future. And there are steps being taken towards that. Um, And the most important, I think, is uh, one that the WHO, again, is coordinating. We're still waiting to see the first draft, but it's a pandemic treaty. But if that happens, it could be a really, I think, powerful tool in the toolbox uh, that we will be using to uh, protect ourselves against pandemics in future. What we've learned is health in 2022 isn't about individual choices. I was wrong. Nor is it about isolated pathogens, whatever this week's health scare might be. We are subject to interconnected systems, supply chains, environmental factors, which put us all in harm's way. So what's the answer? For Christina Pargel, it's a case of political leadership. And we have a pretty clear case study from the British experience of COVID. The saddest thing for me is how many people died in a second wave um, in December, January 2020-2021. Because they died after we had the vaccine. And we just didn't delay it. If we could just we we could have delayed that wave by three months, we would have saved tens of thousands of lives. And we didn't because we didn't act quickly enough. That's where I think that the big failure lies is is not acting quickly enough and not acting hard enough and kind of tinkering around the edges with things like curfews, so which there's never been any scientific evidence that, that they work. I'm sure why you'd even think that would work, as opposed to actually saying, um, let's go hard and early and and stop things spreading. So if you look at like New Zealand, which obviously just slightly different situation, but, you know, because they had their big COVID waves after almost all the population had at least two doses, they've had a far, far lower death rate than we have. You know, they managed to delay it. Yeah. So put simply, there should have been a second hard lockdown sort of in the, in the late autumn, which, which could then possibly have delayed that wave. Well, not even not even necessarily, because if you'd had a really good contact tracing system, if we'd actually got people to isolate, we could have avoided a lockdown. So South Korea, Japan never had lockdowns, but also had far, far fewer deaths than we had and also kept things under control pretty much until Omicron came along and most people were vaccinated because they they managed to stop it spreading through targeted measures like contact tracing, but also things like ventilation, also things like messaging about wearing masks and, and how you mix and where it's safe to mix and things like that. In the years to come, it will be the political decisions like these that will come under the most scrutiny. Yet by then, the ministers will have retired or moved up the ladder into the private sector or a career in reality TV. 
while for the bereaved, for the healthcare workers now playing catch-up to treat the backlog caused by the pandemic, for those people, the thought that we might do better next time will be scant consolation. The other thing I think people don't realise is there's a psychological burden to working under those extreme circumstances where you know that you haven't always given the best care because you weren't in a position to, because you're looking after 10 people instead of two people and so on. And then you have to live with that. You know, and I talk, you know, I work a lot with ICU doctors, so I guess I'm a bit closer to it, but you talk to people and they talk about, you know, seeing someone and knowing that they were going to die and they couldn't stop it. And that happened again and again and again. And they've never had a chance to really recover from it because now they've got the backlog, you know? Throughout this series, whether we talk about the new weapons of war, the impact of climate change on the Sahel or the Arctic, or the changing nature of pandemics, it has been about a world changing faster than our governance systems can adapt. So how do we, to use a dread phrase, take back control? In 1945, it took a world war and the terrible events of the Holocaust for people to want a new global order. And that order lasted reasonably well, until February this year, in fact. But in the meantime, something else happened which changes the calculations, and which we also covered in this series, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Nobody wants a world war, and in a nuclear-armed world, nobody can afford it either. So almost inevitably, our attention comes back to Ukraine. We know that Ukraine can and increasingly looks likely to be able to save itself from Russia's onslaught. But the bigger question must be, will Ukraine save the rest of us? Could the defeat of Russia open the door to a better future? So join us one last time for our final episode, After Ukraine, Making a Better World. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>